Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. It's so good to see you. We are finishing off our series in the Song of Solomon tonight, and we've come to a message that I've entitled Oneness. So open up your Bibles now to Song of Songs, chapter 8, and in verse 5 of chapter 8, we read this question. The question is asked, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now, in your ESV Bibles, your English Standard Version Bibles that we use here at the, at the church, uh, the translators see this um, question as a continuation of the woman speaking. You remember, if you've been with us through this book, that there are three voices that are woven throughout this book. You have he, that is Solomon. You have she, the Shulamite woman, who is Solomon's wife. And then you have the others, the chorus, the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, unlike the ESV, which sees this question as a continuation of the woman speaking, most of the other English translations of the Bible that I checked see this question as belonging to the chorus, the others, the daughters of Jerusalem. And I think that they're actually right. I think right here, the others, the chorus, breaks in, and this signals a new section in the book, the final section of the book. You see, so far in the Song of Songs, we've seen this couple, they meet, they're attracted to one another. We see in chapter 3, they get married. We see chapter 4, the honeymoon. We see chapter 5, there is trouble in paradise as the reality of marriage settles in. And then in chapters 6 and 7, we see them sort that out. But now we see that the couple has matured and the chorus breaks in and says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now, this would have been familiar imagery for the Jewish people. You see, the people of Israel, they spent 40 years in the wilderness before entering into the promised land with their beloved, the Lord. So by using this imagery, the author is signaling that this couple has passed through the wilderness periods in their marriage, and they've safely arrived on the other side. They are now a mature married couple. Now, what is a mature married couple? What does a mature marriage look like? Well, I think it is one word, my friends. It's the word oneness. The goal of marriage is oneness. God said as much when he performed the very first wedding ceremony. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now, the purpose of marriage, obviously, is to glorify God, but the goal of marriage is to become one, is to leave all other earthly allegiances behind and to be joined to this one person. Now, notice it says that she is leaning on her beloved, which denotes that she is relaxed. She's secure in his love. Such is the tenderness and trust And notice now that the daughters of Jerusalem, they don't even recognize her. They're like, who is this coming up from the wilderness? You know, this happens in marriage, is that as you go along in marriage, you become like the other person. 
uh, Tegan's mom will often say to Tegan, she'll say, Tegan, you have changed. You are so much like Timon. And I don't think she, that she means by that a compliment, by the way. But <laughs> the reality is, is that I have rubbed off on her and she has rubbed off on me. Now, this does not mean that when you get married, you lose your sense of personal identity. You are still you. But what it means is that when you get married, you no longer think of yourself as just an individual. It's no longer just Timon. It's Timon and Tegan. We have this shared identity. We are one. It's no longer Jeff. It's Jeff and Carol. It's no longer Carl. It's Carl and Beck. It's no longer Damien. It's Damien and Kerry. It's no longer Jason. It's Jason and Lauren. And I could keep on going. You see, the goal of marriage is to cultivate this beautiful sense of oneness as you turn away from selfishness. And it's true that after the honeymoon and after the first couple of years of marriage, there is this wilderness period that you go through because I hate to tell you this, you've lived your whole life as an individual and now you have to live with another person and that can be difficult. You know, um, we all come from a family of origin, and in the family of origin that we grow up in, we implicitly learn different rules, different responsibilities, and different roles. And we just think that that is the way it is, and that's the right way. The way that my parents taught me is the right way. There's no other way. And you're taught like that, and, and the other person grows up in their family of origin, and they have different roles, rules, and responsibilities, and you have these two families, and you're trying to make these two one, and you know what you do in the process of two becoming one? There is bound to be conflict. For example, Tegan and I, um, you know, when we were first married, um, she, I was in this other room, and she called me, and she's like, Timon, Timon. I thought there was something really a problem, and so I came running into this other room. She said, Timon. Do you notice something that's a problem in this room? I said, no. And she said, there's something out of place. And she moved this tiny little implement just, just like that. She said, do you see that? You see, because in Tegan's family growing up, there was a rule that everything has its place and everything must be in its place. In my family growing up, we just put anything anywhere. She was even lucky that that little thing was there in the first place, that it was in that spot. I mean, that was just amazing for me to do. And, um, you know, so I am certain that over those couple of years, that as we sorted those things out, that, you know, I drove her nuts, and I'm sure that, and I, and I know that she drove me nuts as well. <laughs> uh, Stanley Hovervoss, he says, we never know the one whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and to care for the stranger to whom you got married. But in this way, let me tell you that marriage is an enormous grace. Because through marriage, God will teach you the gospel and he will sanctify you. You know, I found that there is no other relationship on earth that has more changed me than my marriage. Because as your selfishness is exposed, you have a choice to make. Will I, be, will I continue to be selfish and run away from oneness? Or will I, by God's grace and empowering, come up out of the wilderness and embrace this other person, dying to myself, taking up my cross and following Christ in my marriage. 
And if you do that, you do come up out of the wilderness. And there is this beautiful sweetness that comes into marriage, this beautiful oneness that brings glory to God and joy into your life and joy into the lives of others. But I want to be honest with you tonight. The process of coming up out of the wilderness is very difficult. And that is why you need to recognize that God didn't make a mistake when he chose the spouse that you have. Look down in verse 5. The Shulamite woman speaks again. She says, Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Now, there are several strong images in this verse, but basically I think that the woman is saying, Your mother conceived you and gave birth for you just for me. The woman is reflecting on their relationship and she sees how God sovereignly planned it right from the very day of, the, of his birth. He was born for her. Now, I want you to know that I do reject the idea of there being a soulmate for every person. I reject the idea that there is this one person out there who will complete you and if you don't find them, then you're doomed to be unhappy. I think that's a very self-centered and unbiblical idea. But I do think that God in his sovereignty, he plans the circumstances of our lives. I do believe that God sovereignly planned for Tegan and I to meet. And while I was free to choose to marry another person, and while she was free to choose to marry another person, our marriage was part of God's sovereign plan. And God allowed me to choose to marry her. And we got married. And he even allowed us to get married at a young age, at the age of 19, with all of our many problems. And he even allowed us to go through five years of hell in the first five years of our marriage. And I don't believe that God made a mistake. I believe that this was part of God's sovereign plan from, for my life and that she was part of God's sovereign choice for me. And it's a bit of a mystery, but just as God created Eve for Adam, a partner suitable for him, I believe that God created Tegan for me. And I had this mind-blowing thought on Friday. I was just blown away by the sovereignty and power of God that while I'm a little boy in Queensland cheering for the mighty Maroons, <laughs> in all my brokenness and family upbringing, there is this other little girl growing up in New South Wales with all of her brokenness. And our brokenness was not a surprise to God, but it would be part of the sovereign instrument that he would use to shape me and to mold me into the person that he wants me to become so that I would become more like Christ. And if you're not married here tonight, the same is true for you. The circumstances of your life are not an accident. Brokenness is not a surprise to God. It's part of his sovereign plan for shaping you and humbling you so that you will follow him. And I tell you, it's only after many years of marriage that as you look back, you can start to appreciate God's sovereign choice. You know, when you're in the wilderness, you have many questions like, did I marry the right one? I mean, this person is so different from me. Their family is so different from me. They're weird. But as you pursue oneness, as you die to yourself, take up your cross you start to realize that God knows you better than you and he knows what you need more than you think that you know what you need. You know, a couple of years ago, I was flying to New Zealand as I do on a trip 
And on my way over, I was just praying and I was completely overcome and started weeping over how gracious God has given, been to me in giving me my precious wife, Tegan. If you know me well, you know I'm pretty ambitious, I'm pretty driven, I have lofty goals and big plans. And uh, Tegan is very real and she's brutally honest. If you know Tegan, you know that's true. And as I was praying, I just, I, just, I just was gripped by the reality that God didn't make a mistake. He knew who I needed. I needed someone brutally honest who would be brutally honest with me. He would tell me, Timon, you're an idiot. <laughs> Timon, you're spending too much time you know, outside of the family. You're spending too much time in the ministry. I needed someone like that. If I just had this really quiet little wall, like, you know, wallflower, that would never do me. I needed someone who was like Tegan. You see, God knows what you need more than you know what you need. So a mature marriage is where you've reached this growing sense of oneness, this real deep appreciation for the person who God has brought into your life and sovereignly allowed you to marry. Well, then in verse 7, we see Solomon's bride declares this. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now, seals in the ancient times were symbols of possession. Uh, Solomon's, it's like Solomon's bride is saying, I want you to tattoo my name on your heart. I want you to make me your treasured possession. Now, I think that part of this is that she did not want any other woman to catch her husband's affection or attention. For she goes on to say, for love is as strong as death. You know what that means? Death is universal. Everyone dies. It's irresistible. And love is a powerful emotion. It's very, very strong. We have to be very careful with love because love is a very powerful emotion. And then she says, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Now, when it comes to jealousy, we tend to think of jealousy as a negative emotion. But it says, actually, in the Bible that God, our God is a jealous God. You see, inherent in love is jealousy. Inherent in true love is jealousy. If you're truly in love, you're jealous for the singular devotion of the person you love. You know, if I was to say to Tegan, you're my number one girl, Tegan, but I have a number two, a number three, a number four, a number five, but you're my number one, I'd get a slap in the face, right? Because she just doesn't want to be number one. She wants to be the one and only. God doesn't want to just be one of many gods in our lives. He wants complete devotion. He is a jealous God. And you see, what I think this is saying is this is saying, the woman is saying, I want your complete devotion. I want to be your treasure. Set me as a seal on your heart. You know, once you're married, your flirting days are over. Don't take your wedding ring off. Keep your wedding ring on. And be careful with relationships with the opposite sex when you're married. I don't have any relationships with girls apart from the friends of my, uh, my wife's friends. And even the women that I work with in the office, I seek to maintain a healthy uh, distance from. And that is because I don't, I want to set my seal upon my wife. She is the object of my affection. And I want to be careful because 
Once you start down this path of emotional intimacy with someone else, love is a strong emotion. And many people who got into affairs, they got into affairs because they started down a path of just emotional bonding with someone who wasn't their spouse. You know, my dad, he used to have all these names for my mum. Uh, he used to call her, get this, Petty Pie Chicka, Honey Bunch, Sugar Plum. <laughs> and as boys, my older brother and my younger brother, we used to just say, Dad, you're so daggy. Like, how daggy is that? Honey, Petty Pie Chicka, Honey Bunch, Sugar Plum. But now I just realized that these were just expressions of my dad's affection for my mother. She was his treasure. She... He cherished, he cherished my mum. You know, and in a mature marriage, you need to cherish your spouse. Well, look down in verse 7, we read this. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can floods drown it. You know, in every marriage, there will come floods, there will come difficult circumstances. But by God's empowering grace in the gospel, you can work through it. For she goes on to say, it will be worth it. She says in verse 7, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. If someone offers you all the money for your marriage, don't take it. A good marriage is worth it. You know, don't, don't trade your marriage just for a fling. Don't trade away your marriage for a job. A good marriage is worth it. You know, I watched a clip this year on YouTube by an author, Simon Sinek, and he was talking about the power of small choices. He was saying this, which is really interesting. He says, if you want to get fit, it won't just come by making a choice, like one choice, and then going out and going for a run, and then you're fit. He'll say that you need to make these small choices every day, that you need to get up and go for a run and eat certain foods. And then one day, before long, you'll wake up one day and you go, I'm fit. I didn't even realize it. Now, when did it happen? You don't really realize it's happening, but it's happening every day by the small choices that you make. And I think the same is true for a mature marriage. You know, many people, when they come for marriage counseling at our church here, they want us to wave a magic wand and they want all their marriage problems to go away. But really, a mature marriage comes about through small choices that you make every day. So let me give you five practical small choices that you can make. Number one, choose every day to thank God for the spouse that he's given you. If you're married, why don't you go home today and write out the top 10 reasons why you are the most fortunate husband or wife in the world. I bet you if you read that out every day, you will, you will be blown away and your heart will start to fill with love for your spouse. Number two, Choose every day before you go to work to say, I love you. Express affection often. Choice number three, choose to pray together and read God's word. As a Christian, if you're reading the Bible and God's word together and you're getting close to God, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to each other. Choice number four, choose to forgive. No one will hurt you more than your spouse. And so you need to be a person who forgives and leaves past hurts behind. And number five, choose to never give up. Choose to never use the D word when you get into a fight. Never even bring it up. Never actually joke about it. You see, love is a verb. We choose to love. And if we choose to make small choices, then I'm certain over a lifetime, it will lead to a mature and mutually satisfying marriage. 
Now, look down your Bibles. We come now to verses 8 to 12, and they are not easy to interpret. Good, godly Bible scholars admit that these verses are difficult, and so they draw very different conclusions. But I think that verses 8 to 12 probably should be understood as a flashback to the Shulamite's youth and her initial meeting of Solomon. You see, from chapter 1, we saw that she thought that her brothers were very, very hard on her. But now we see that she has a different perspective on her brothers. Her brothers speak in verse 8. Look down in verse 8. We read this. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day that she's spoken for? In other words, her brothers are asking, what shall we do for the day of her marriage? Well, they go on to say in verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I think the expression, if she is a wall, speaks of moral purity. I think the brothers are saying is that if our sister is a person of moral integrity and moral purity, then we will honor her. But if she is a door, I think that's speaking of moral weakness and promiscuity, they're going to seek to protect her and protect her virginity for the day of her wedding. Now, I know in our culture, the idea of saving yourself for marriage and being a virgin is deemed to be old-fashioned. And also, the idea of having people to look out for you is really old-fashioned. But God is saying this in his word. And the woman now looks back on what her brothers have done for her, and she's thankful. Look down in verse 10. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes, her husband's eyes, as one who finds peace. Do you know what? I'm so thankful for my church that told me about moral purity. I'm so thankful for those people who guarded my moral purity. I'm so thankful to my dad and my mom and others around me who did that for me so that on the day when I, when I got married, I could present to my wife my nakedness. And she's the only one I've seen and I'm the only one that she's seen. It's a very, very beautiful thing not to be despised, not to be scoffed at, not to be laughed at, but something to be celebrated. You know, waiting until you're married does bring a foundation of trust into your relationship. Tommy Nelson, in his book on the Song of Solomon, writes this, The husband or wife of a virgin can't help but reason, even subconsciously, they save themselves for me. If they have that kind of personal discipline and righteousness before marriage, there is no doubt that they will have that kind of personal discipline and righteousness after the wedding is over. They are a man or a woman who will stay faithful to me. You see, the foundation of a good marriage is trust. Trusting another person's character. And if you marry someone who you can trust, then you can be at ease with that person. Now, I know that there might be many people here tonight and you are not a virgin. And I want you to know 
that you're among a group of people who are broken. We're all broken in many, many ways. I'm the first person who's broken up here tonight in many, many ways. And that's why we have the gospel. The gospel comes, it cleanses us and it changes us and it can renew our sexual purity. But if you're going to get married very, very soon, listen to me. Be open and talk about these things. Be open about your past. And together, in prayer and confession, make confession to God. So that as you step into marriage, there is nothing hidden in the closet. You're coming in pure before God and pure before your partner. It will be a beautiful thing. Well, then the Song of Solomon finishes with Solomon speaking about his vineyard and the couple making themselves totally available to one another. Solomon says in verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she says in verse 14, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. She loves him and she's totally available to him. And this should be what marriage is like, that we love each other and we serve each other and we're totally available to one another. Now, as we come to the end of this book, and it seems like the curtain is coming down on the end of this book, it seems like it's going to read this, and they lived happily ever after. What a beautiful picture of romance and marriage, and they lived happily ever after. But do you know what? It was not to be. They did not live happily ever after. Their marriage actually ended in tragedy. In 1 Kings 11 verse 1, we read this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. He did not set her as a seal upon his heart. He did not remain pure for her. Like the kings of the nations around him, he went after other women. And so their marriage ended in brokenness. The Shulamite woman would have been completely heartbroken. She did not get what she was hoping for out of love. Guess what? I hate to tell you young people this. But this side of the fall, every human relationship is filled with brokenness. You will not get what you're hoping for out of human relationships. If you put your hope into marriage, you will be disappointed. And why can't you do that? Because marriage and romance is not the ultimate thing. And in fact, this is spelt out in the Song of Song. Look down in verse 6. You may, may have missed this, but I missed out a phrase in verse 6, a phrase that I believe is the key to the whole book. You see, it's the only place in the whole book of the Song of Songs where God is mentioned. Look in verse 6 again. The woman says, For love is as strong as death, jealousy is as fierce as the grave, its flashes, that's love flashes, are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. You see, what she is saying is that in love and romance and marriage, we get a spark of the divine, a spark of the divine flame. It points to God, but it is not the ultimate thing. God is the ultimate thing, which is why you are not missing out if you are single. Because the ultimate thing in life is not marriage, it's not sex, it's not romance. 
Regardless of what our culture says, those things are great blessings that point to the ultimate thing. They are flashes of the divine, flashes of fire, but the ultimate thing is God. And you see, as we read tonight, marriage actually points to Jesus and his relationship with the church. Do you know, he has brought us all out of the wilderness. And we are leaning on him and his cross. He has set us as a seal on his heart. He is completely available to us. We can go to him and speak to him anytime. And if as a single person, you make marriage and romance ultimate, if you make it an idol, if you make it something that you must have, you are pursuing after a guy or pursuing after a girl, and you are unhappy unless you get that guy or girl, you are going to be disappointed. Even if you get someone as good as Solomon, none of the guys here are as good as Solomon. Solomon was a king. He was rich. He was wise. He had God's wisdom. And yet he disappointed the Shulamite woman. And if you're a married person in the same way, if you make your marriage the ultimate thing and you look to your spouse to actually provide you happiness, you too will be disappointed because your spouse was never meant to fulfill you. God is the ultimate one. You see, what would it profit a person if they gained the whole world but forfeited their soul? What would it profit you if you had the perfect marriage and went to hell? Five years ago, I did a funeral for this couple. A great couple. A great moral couple. I heard their story. They left the church at the age of 20. They were now... He was in his mid-80s, and he was burying his wife. And they had had 60 years of faithful, good marriage. As they talked about their marriage, they had a blessed marriage, a great marriage, a marriage that any one of us would want. But what does that matter now? They gained the world. They gained a great marriage. They forfeited their soul. You see, marriage is not the ultimate thing. It is a blessing. It gives us a flash of the divine but God is the ultimate one. He is the ultimate thing. And you see, it's only when you get your vertical relationship with God right that your horizontal relationships start to work. And this is why Solomon got off track. We read in 1 Kings verse 4 that as he grew old, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. You know, if I was a young person here today, I wouldn't make it my aim to make marriage or romance or sex the ultimate thing that I'm searching for in life, I would make my ultimate aim to be a person who is fully devoted to God. That's what I would make my aim. I'm going to make my aim to be fully devoted to God. And if I was a married person here tonight, I'd make that the same aim. I want to be a person who's fully devoted to God. Because of what Christ has done for me, I want to be fully devoted to him in my life. You know, I had a rough time the first five years of my marriage. And it all turned around when Tegan and I started to realize that we could not change each other. The only persons that we could change was ourself. And we needed to look to God. And once we started to look to God and look to him, and get our eyes off each other and trying to meet our needs in one another, then God came into our marriage and he changed things. God can come into your life 
He can change your life. He is the ultimate one. So as we come to the end of the book of Song of Solomon, I hope that it has given you a desire for a healthy, godly marriage. That's a good thing. It's a flash of the divine. But greater, greater than that, greater than that tonight, what I'm hoping is that all of us are hungering for a deeper relationship with God, to make Him the ultimate thing in our lives. Because you can gain the whole world, but you can forfeit your soul. And what could you give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. But He gave everything for you so that you could know Him if you'll come back to Him tonight. Let me pray. Father, this world lies to us. It lies to us. It tells us that if only we had that Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, then we would be happy. Or if only we had a certain sexual experience, then we would be happy. But our hearts were not created primarily for those things. Our heart was created for you, living God, to know you and love you and enjoy you forever. And we thank you for the glimpse that we see in romance and love of the divine, the glimpse we see in a healthy, mature marriage of the relationship of Christ to his church. But I think tonight, Father, you are beckoning people to come to you and surrender to you and to change the course of their life away from searching and pursuing the one to searching and surrendering to you, Lord God, the ultimate one. Oh, Father, move in our hearts tonight and help us to see that with Jesus, we can be satisfied because he is that ultimate one who brings us into union with himself, who loves us, who died for us, who is glorious, Father. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song, I Surrender. And let's make this our prayer. Tonight, we are coming back to the Lord. We're surrendering ourselves to him. laying it on the altar before him. Lord, we're laying ourselves down before